Welcome to the African Climate Breakdown podcast, a show on climate change with a particular focus on Africa. I'm your host, Dr. Suzanne Carter, and I lead the coordination unit of the Future Climate for Africa Research Program, or FCFA, a program that works to improve the understanding of how Africa's climate is changing, how that affects communities, and what can be done to create a climate-resilient future. Join us as we delve into the innovative research of FCFA and hear on-the-ground stories of climate change in Africa. And so the climate conversation continues. In our previous episode, we looked at some of the science behind climate change in Africa. One of the issues which we could already see from that episode was a significant risk that climate change poses to water resources over the continent. This time, we're going to dive deeper and look at how climate change affects one of our most essential resources. Joining me is Cornelia Epinge, an environmental and water researcher from Namibia. Cornelia, thank you for co-hosting with me. Can you share a little bit about what you do? Thank you for having me, Suzanne. It's great to be here. I am currently working as a project coordinator at the SADC Center for Renewable Energy and Energy Efficiency. In 2017 to 2019, I worked as a Vintuk embedded researcher on the future resilience for African cities and lands project. An embedded researcher is someone who acts as a bridge between policy and research. I worked with the University of Namibia and the city of Vintuk to understand decision-making in the city around climate risk and sharing the knowledge that we gain through the fractal research with the city. During the project, diverse stakeholders, decision-makers, and producers of climate information participated in learning labs, which consists of exercise, and games designed to co-explore relevant issues and co-produce potential solutions. In one of them, we looked at visuals and stories that easily explained the likely changes in climate based on climate models projected for Bentuk. New water restrictions have been imposed in Cape Town, South Africa. In India, rising temperatures threaten to make a severe water crisis there even worse. The greatest global risks of our time the shortage of water. By 2050, the United Nations says more than 5 billion people could be facing water shortages across the globe. Cornelia, I'm sure you also have some interesting lived experience when it comes to water availability, living and working in such an arid country like Namibia. I grew up in Namibia, the driest country in the sub-Saharan Africa. Our mean annual rainfall is estimated to be 285 millimeters. Of the total rainfall, 83% evaporates, 14% is used up by vegetation, 1% recharges groundwater, and only 2% becomes runoff and may be harnessed in dams. In our context, the effect that climate change has on water supply can be devastating. I remember growing up in northern Namibia that the erratic rainfall caused droughts affecting subsistence farmers' crops and livestock. However, on the other end, we experienced floods as well. I used to think water was plenty and did not finish, seeing it in the Kubalai of Shakati Canal from the Kubalai Dam on the Kunene River, which borders Angola and Namibia. However, these changes I started working in Bentuk. I've learned how water is very precious, and we have been experiencing water crisis over the years, and the city of Bentuk, which is the municipality, has put up measures to save water. It's sobering to think that something we take for granted can be in jeopardy. It reminds me of the drought in Cape Town not so long ago, 
where we were weeks away from the city turning off all municipal water supply. After three years of below-average rainfall, Cape Town was facing the possibility of severe water shortages, and in 2018, the city announced that they were a few months away from turning off the taps in what was termed Day Zero. Let's hear more on how the city of Cape Town responded to this drought from Dr. Gina Zierfuchel, an associate professor at the Department of Environmental and Geographical Science at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. Many people heard about day zero and when the city of Cape Town was facing a severe drought. And the challenge was that it's a city of over 4 million people and the city government, um, the metropolitan government, really didn't want to run out of water and not be able to provide essential services. So they set a percentage at which when the dams were 13.5%, they would say it was stage two of the crisis. And at that point, people would no longer get water in their taps and would have to queue at uh, what were called pods, points of distribution to get their water. This made a lot of media coverage around the world. And the drought was severe in Cape Town, but a lot of responses were put in place that helped to reduce the impact of the drought. So there was significant reduction in use of water by residents and businesses. There was water pressure management devices um, put in place, uh, pressure management zones that reduce the pressure, water management devices that cut off water at households that were using a high amount, and a number of technical responses. But there was also a coordination of uh, government trying to think through what a better response might look like. Over time, it became clear that sharing data and information with citizens was really important. The water dashboard got developed so people could see what level the dams were at. Residents and businesses really came to the party and reduced how much water they were using. Um, There was eventually rain in the 2018 season that helped to start filling up the dams. So it really was a multi-player response. Partnerships were developed. We saw incredible innovation from people on how to save water, be more efficient. Businesses changed what they were doing. And the biggest lesson was that water can't just be seen through an engineering and infrastructure lens. It really has to be seen and understood holistically from an environmental lens, from a social lens, from an economic lens. And when you take all those things into consideration and integrate those in your approach, you can have a more well-adapted city. With many cities across Africa dealing with water issues, examples such as Cape Town's Day Zero may be an indication of the types of crisis African cities may face if they do not plan for climate change. We've invited a few FCFA researchers to discuss their experiences and insights. Joining us is Brenda Mwa-Lukanga, one of the embedded researchers from the Fractal Project who worked with the University of Zambia and the Lusaka City Council on issues of informality and water in the city. We also have Dr. Dan Lapworth, a principal hydrogeochemist at the British Geological Survey, who has worked with the High Crystal team studying water resources in the Lake Victoria Basin. So happy to have you both. Thank you, Suzanne. It's lovely to be here. Thank you, Suzanne. I'm happy to be here. Brenda, could you tell us a bit about some of the water issues which are facing Lusaka and how climate change might impact water in the city? Uh, thanks, Cornelia. Um, Lusaka has quite uh, a number of issues. Um, I think it's important for me to state that uh, Lusaka is 70% informal settlements. 
so even the manifestation of water risks and issues within the city uh, has quite a high impact on the population. So we have issues of flooding that come about due to um, the terrain, the geographical makeup, the high water table. We also have issues of uh, poor quality water and uh, also uh, poor quantity not because we have uh, inadequate resources, but because in terms of management and uh, supply, uh, we have very limited access uh, by um, a majority of the population. And then also because of uh, the rapid urbanization and the increase uh, in demand uh, for water from commercial and economic activities, there's unregulated abstraction, which also um, poses a risk um, to the quality and the quantity of water that is available within uh, the city of Lusaka. Thanks, Brenda. Building from Cornelia and Gina's experiences, it seems that water supply issues are a big challenge for Southern African cities. But I would like us to also shift to East Africa. Dan, could you share some of your insights into how climate change is likely to impact water resources in the Lake Victoria Basin? And could you tell us more about what this means for cities in this region? Well, first of all, um, it's probably worth mentioning that um, the Lake Victoria Basin itself is quite a humid region, so quite a wet region. um, And there are a a great deal of uncertainty around future climates within that region. However, um, current uh, research uh, on on climate impacts um, has sort of highlighted maybe uh, a more uh, more humid uh, context in the future and also possibly uh, more intense rainfall events, which obviously has impacts potentially on surface waters uh, within this basin and um, particularly on flooding and, and the frequency of flooding and the extent of flooding. So I think one, one aspect to focus on, particularly for the Lake Victoria Basin being a slightly wetter basin, uh, will be um, the impacts on surface waters, the impacts on flooding and, and the impacts on um, inundation uh, for lower-lying parts of the basin. Uh, and some of these uh, lower-lying parts of the basin are occupied by cities. Um, and two of the cities we've been looking at uh, are um, Kampala and also um, Kisumu in Kenya. And parts of these cities, particularly low-income uh, uh, settlements, are located within these lower-lying regions of the city um, and are likely to be more impacted, even even though they're currently uh It'd be fair to say very impacted by flooding um, and by by uh, by by rainfall events, and we've seen that very very uh, very obviously recently in the last few months. Um, but I think this is likely to be a larger issue going forward, particularly as as there is greater pressure on 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 settlements and greater pressure on these these urban areas as they develop and as the population increases. Um, there's going to be greater pressure on these lower-lying areas of land in more informal settlements and, um, and, and, and as well as impact on other infrastructure such as potentially critical transport uh, infrastructure like roads and bridges and maybe communication networks as well. Um, so I think flooding is probably the one to be, to, to be focused on in this particular region of, of Africa. Thanks, Dan. It's quite interesting that in one region of southern Africa, Droughts and water scarcity seems to be the major issue. And in East Africa, we've got the opposite where floods are probably going to be the thing that is, is driving most of the water issues. However, there is the commonality of having either too much or too little water. And these water supply issues really um, seem to be something that we need to delve into in terms of how do we manage those better. So Cornelia and then maybe Brenda, if you could 
happen after. I wonder if you could share from your experiences how the cities have learned from each other in how to respond to these kinds of issues. So in terms of Ventuk, um, during the Fractal project, we had a city-to-city city city exchange visit where Brenda and myself were involved. We traveled to either the cities and we have learned how it's important to have city-to-city city discussions in how uh, different cities manage water. As an example, Vintuk has been leading in the water reclamation uh, activities, which then Lusaka has learned. As another example, uh, Namibia is very strict in terms of groundwater uh, regulations, which also then in Lusaka, that was a problem. But from our exchange, it seemed that Lusaka had learned and put up the regulations then. Thanks, Cornelia. And Brenda, what are your views? So Lusaka was able to learn from um, Windhoek, which is um, a city that is faced with water scarcity uh, in the sense that um, it's been able to reclaim water, but also to develop alternative sources that are not uh, only reliant on um, um, rainwater uh considering its climatic conditions. And with the learning exchanges that occurred between the city of Windhoek officials and uh, the city of Lusaka officials, uh, the city of Lusaka has been able to put in place um, projects that are looking to develop alternative sources of uh, water uh, and not heavily rely uh, on the Kafir River, which is likely to be impacted by climate change in the future and will result in declining water resources. Also, I think Windhoek coming to Lusaka, they were able to see how from a planning and uh, an urban and slum upgrading strategy, uh, they could um, incorporate the informal settlements that were um, developing around um, their city, uh, how to ensure that they are able to provide water, which is a right that everybody has, despite them being in locations where um, perhaps uh, they have settled um, informally and illegally and vice versa as well. So, for instance, even the metered taps within um, the city of Windhoek have been replicated in areas that contendere within the city of uh, Lusaka. Great. That's that's a really interesting insight. Um, I'm going to switch to Dan again. Uh, could you maybe share some thoughts, Dan, about how cities should be engaging with these wider water management issues, water resource management issues and plans? Do you think African cities are doing this and should they be doing more to ensure a sustainable water supply? I mean, I'm not going to speak for all African cities. Um, my experience is, is, is only in a few. And I think this, this, this dialogue and this conversation is certainly happening between cities uh, and, and wider stakeholders and other responsible agencies within each country. But I'm sure more could be done. Um, I mean, I've got, there, there are, there's uh, some, some examples I can, I can point to that we've done as part of High Crystal. Um, colleagues at, at the University of Leeds have been working alongside the city councils, both in Kisumu and Kampala, to look at this issue and particularly look at the, um, the issue of water supply, but also sanitation and the impacts on sanitation and the impacts that flooding will have on, on the functionality of, of sanitation systems um, and the operations of, of sanitation systems and how that may impact on public health um, and also on water resources within these settings. So I think um, that's one, one aspect to particularly uh, focus on. I think the other one that's been touched on by the other contributors is also this fact that you've got multiple types of, of water resource that people are using within within the urban uh, within the urban system. So there's, there's lots of um, smaller um, private supplies. These may be boreholes or wells that people are using, as well as 
the network to pipe water that's being supplied. Um, uh, and in, in the case of Kampala and Kasumi, this, this pipe supply is coming from the lake itself, from Lake Victoria treated lake water. Um, so there's a great dependency on that particular surface water resource. But also there is a, there is a kind of a diffuse network of, of groundwater uh, resources that people are also using, um, in part because of the accessibility of this pipe network scheme, not, not stretching everywhere and not being everywhere within the urban context, not being affordable to everyone as yet, and also not being available. Um, uh, and, uh, and I think, you know, the cities and, and, and the agencies, the Ministry of Water and Environment that we're working with in Uganda are certainly doing a good job at, at looking at, uh, across the wider area across the um the kind of the national the national picture if you like looking at looking at how water resource will be will be, be available and, and change under different climates um but i think there's a lot more work and it's a lot more complicated when you start to look at the city level uh there's a lot more stakeholders a lot more partners that that need to be involved within that within that dialogue um and i think it's one that that needs more work um but uh, but it's it, it's certainly uh, it's certainly there, and it's certainly evident within the stakeholders' minds. You know this issue of of, of change, changes in climates and how it may impact on their on their resources and impact on their livelihoods within those settings. Brenda, um, how have you engaged with decision makers around water and climate issues in Lusaka during the Fratal project, and as well as with the Lusaka Water Security Initiative? So um, with the Fractal project, we would organize learning labs um, to bring together um, city decision makers, researchers, technocrats um, into the same room to learn around, about the, the issues of water, to learn about issues of climate change. Uh, would also organize specific um, trainings and dialogues. So, for instance, would have um, uh, governance dialogues that would specifically deal with policymakers and only those that are around governance and decision making. Would also have specific um, dialogues that would focus around um, generating or co-producing climate information. So, would would uh, broaden and also narrow and focus uh, in terms of our engagement, and also dependent on uh, the city needs that were identified. So, for instance, even our MET department and even the Water Resource Management Authority recognized that they needed specific um, training around climate modeling. So, we would engage them around trainings, around um, specific dialogues where we would try to understand what their challenges are and to tailor the type of training and learning that would be, um, uh, that would capacitate them, but also would be beneficial for them. And then um, in the last um, two years, we have been engaging them on what is called uh, as the Lusaka Water Security Initiative, which is a coordination um, platform, a multi-stakeholder platform that also brings in civil society and the private sector. And uh, the idea is that we should have different actors that have oversight on the different risks uh, to water, to energy, and also to climate change within the city of Lusaka. But more importantly, that we take a multi-stakeholder approach in addressing um, uh, those issues that we identify within the water sector, uh, bearing in mind that um, climate is also likely to impact um, uh, the water sector. So we've, we've tried to use learning approaches uh, on the Fractal project, which has also been replicated into uh, the Lusaka Water Security Initiative. We've used um, tailor-made uh, um, dialogues uh, for specific audiences. We recognize that our 
partnership um, is uh, a broad range from private sector, civil society, researchers, policymakers. So sometimes you have to zone in and tailor make um, that dialogue specific to the interests and to the learning um, gaps of a specific um, target audience. And other times we broaden it so that our different actors can recognize the different experiences that uh, our different actors uh, and uh, partners are experiencing, but more importantly, how we can collate and pull together our resources to address some um, these challenges in the water sector. It seems that those that are most impacted by water resource issues are those that are living in peri-urban or informal settlements where municipal services are not as developed as other parts of the city. Uh, Brenda, would you like to comment on what cities are doing, uh, what cities like Lusaka are doing to ensure that safe water supply is given to the people in those kinds of areas? I think... uh Lusaka, again, is 70% informal. So I think from the 90s, we have uh, recognized that um, those that come to Lusaka have a right to the city. And so there have been attempts to upgrade some of these um, uh, slums and also to regularize them. And if uh, as a city authority, they regularize a particular area that has been deemed as informal, it means that they are now mandated to provide the requisite services And so um, over the years, what has been happening is that um, they have been developing uh, what is called a water security action and investment planning process that uh, also recognizes the need to provide water in these informal settlements and also to provide the other requisite um, services such as drainage and so on. So... Um, what what um, Lusaka has been doing is that they have been engaging in processes um, such as the water security action and investment planning process, the community engagement and empowerment um, process uh, to utilize um, acts uh, such as the Urban and Regional Planning Act, the Decentralization Act or policy that requires that uh, a bottom-up approach should be used with um, the citizen taking control of um, their development, which also includes water supply services and uh, water security issues. So they've been undertaking a process of developing uh, local area plans that uh, reflect water security with um, support from the private sector, uh, led by the local authority and also um, uh, the, the Lusaka Water Supply and Sanitation Company. Thanks so much, Brenda. I'm going to ask Dan if he could answer the same question and whether there are potentially similar issues of informality in Uganda. Yes, I think I think it's fair to say there are. Um, and, and also in Kenya, in the Kasumu case study we looked at as well, I think the, 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 um, there are very similar challenges in terms of the network uh, of public water supply that's treated and distributed um, sometimes not being available in some areas or not being available all the time in other areas. But I think, you know, that the, the councils and the and the um the public bodies responsible for water supply and private bodies water responsible for water supply have done an awful lot of work in trying to extend those networks and make them more available to people to other people. Um but I think there's there is a continued challenge. There's still a lot of work to be done. It's not reaching everybody. Um, and also a lot of people are still dependent on alternative sources that that are considered certainly um, unimproved and, and are much higher risk sources potentially. We've heard from the example of uh, the day zero in South, in South Africa, Cape Town, uh, that sharing data and information with citizens was an important approach to reducing the water use uh, during the drought in 2018. Ten, how important do you think accessible water resources data is for ensuring sustainable water supply for cities. 
Yes, I think it's an I think it's an important issue. I think um, first of all, there are, there are two sides of the the equation, but both the the um, understanding of citizens in terms of the particular water stress um, episode that they're within, for instance, that the Cape Town example that you that you draw on, I think it's important for citizens to understand how they can reduce demand and potentially reduce use under particularly water stress. Uh, conditions and how to do that effectively and I think communication around that is is particularly important Um, but there's also on the flip side there's also understanding uh, the water resource that is available and how vulnerable that is uh, to changes in climate and maybe episodes that are drier um, and how and how the blend of groundwater and and surface water and other other water sources are um, uh, may be impacted by future climate Um, and I think it, it, it's partly around understanding the vulnerability of the current infrastructure and network and about future-proofing that and making sure that more climate-resilient uh, infrastructure is in place. Uh, so that may be, in, in some examples, that may be extending uh, groundwater resource availability within that region, if that's possible, uh, or, or indeed uh, ex- extending uh, surface water capacity to, to allow for the fluctuations in, in the climates in the future. Thank you so much, Brenda and Dan. When looking at these examples, it's clear that water issues are already a major concern across Africa, making it all the more important to plan for climate change when water supply may become even more erratic. Let's take a look at what the Umfula team working in Malawi and Tanzania is doing to improve how water resources are managed in the future. Professor Julian Haru is Chair of Water Engineering at the University of Manchester and is one of the co-investigators of the Umfula project. The Umfula team has been doing research around how governments should consider climate change in the planning of developments within river basins in both Tanzania and Malawi. Particularly, how to navigate the impacts these developments may have on the water availability for the environment and other vital economic sectors. This research has provided a vital tool for the government to manage trade-offs within the Rafiji River Basin in Tanzania. Thank you for joining us, Julian. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. We've heard a little bit about some of the water issues facing African cities, but I'm interested to learn a little bit more about what can be done to plan for the future. Julian, could you tell us maybe something about what Umfula has been doing around the water energy food nexus? Yes, thank you. Um, So the Umfula is looking at different river basins in Malawi and in Tanzania. And the part that I worked on specifically uh, with colleagues at London School of Economics and other universities in the UK and universities in Tanzania is the Rufiji River Basin. That's a, a beautiful river basin in the southeast of the country. It has most of the hydropower potential and most of the hydropower installed capacity currently in Tanzania. And it also has a whole series of national parks and, and beautiful areas in a, a wide range of different um, sort of ge- geographical environments. Uh, it's a beautiful place. And therefore, th- this was a, an interesting study to do there. There are some very large uh, infrastructure assets that are being considered by the government and currently a large uh, hydropower dam that's planned the, the Rafiji Basin Hydropower Project. And so, you know, the questions that, that this research project asks are very real, and uh, there's considerable interest uh, in, the, in the answers to all these questions. So it's both a, a rewarding and interesting place to work, but it's also not, a, not an easy one because there's considerable attention uh, placed on, on what we do and what we say. 
So it's not one of those case studies where the the work is completely divorced from reality. There's a large hydropower dam planned by the government. It will be very expensive. It will require a lot of sacrifices. And so these questions about trade-offs between different benefits and the resilience and the viability of the asset under climate change are not academic questions. They're very real questions. And uh, this made the project uh, very especially interesting. So what was the result of the, the project? What did you manage to influence within the governments in the Rafiji River Basin? Well, that's always difficult to say how much we were able to influence. The way that water infrastructure is decided upon and energy infrastructure is a really complex social-political process and also historical. This hydropower project used to be called Stiegler's Gorge Dam because it was first, uh, I wouldn't say planned, but it was first recommended by someone who visited that basin maybe over a hundred years ago. Uh, and so it adopted his name for a long time. Now the name has changed and the planning has changed, but one could consider that the the consideration of putting in this hydropower asset, the Refugee Basin uh, Hydropower Project, has been in process for over a hundred years. So uh, the, the the one or two years that we worked on it, of course, is almost insignificant in that in that wider context. But what you know, what we try to do is that we, you know, the fundamental tool of I would say modern uh, river basin planners is a river basin simulation model. In that, you can think of that as just like a spreadsheet that counts the water over time and space and just looks at how that water generates benefits. And that's really fundamental part of, of the approach that we use is that we're just using a computer to count the benefits of water. So where does the water occur in the river basin and how is that distributed over time and space uh, in the different, uh, the different tributaries of the rivers and where does it create benefits? And those benefits are quite varied. Um, of course, there's the obvious economic ones like the hydropower, and there are several dams uh, already there. But there's also all sorts of complex ecosystem and biological benefits. There's also irrigation uh, schemes. And then, of course, all the, you know, a lot of people live off of uh, food from the river and that the amount of food and fish that's available at, in the river and at the mouth of the river in the delta is dependent on the river flow. So it's a really complex uh, socioeconomic, biological web and system of resources. And, you know, as scientists and engineers and, and sociologists working on this project, you know, we, we have a, a relatively simple approach where we just use the computer to count the water, where it happens, where it occurs, where it manifests, and where it generates benefits. And that river basin model then uh, can be connected to some uh, exciting new artificial intelligence algorithms. Um, that's a, a big advance in the last 10, 15 years. You have these new artificial intelligence algorithms that allow to search for information and for search for good solutions very quickly, a bit like when you search on Google for information. Well, what we do is we connect our, our search engine to our river basin model, and then we just ask the simple question, Given these 10 benefits, the ones that I listed before, uh, what are combinations of future interventions, development actions in the river basin that could be most beneficial and which would most appropriately trade off the benefits between different social groups, different regional groups, different geographies, 
and different uh, economic and social, different sectors as well, different economic sectors, for example, irrigation and hydropower. So we have produced this tool and made it available. Uh, and in the recent DFID and NERC Umfula extension, we've been able to place the tool online and are now trading people in its use. So it's an exciting project, how much we've actually been able to influence the, you know, the actual design parameters of the dam. You know, that's almost too early to, to comment. I think what we're trying to do is to create almost a institutional and cultural shift between the, between a more closed and hush hush culture of planning for hydropower where uh, finance ministries and maybe some of the water and energy infrastructure, you know, are having pretty much closed conversations at a sort of technocratic financial level and trying to open, open that up into a more broad based a discussion with more civil society and more stakeholder involvement, which says, why don't we make big investment decisions in river basins by looking at a more broad uh, and a more rich palette of different metrics of performance and different social and environmental and economic benefits. So rather than just saying, okay, here's a river basin, how much megawatts can we get out of it? looking for more, you know, trying to paint a more complex picture and to see how can we really, how as humans, can we harness that river basin in such a way that many different socioeconomic and environmental benefits can be can be obtained from it. Thanks, Julian. I wondered if you could explain a little bit about what the Water Energy Food Nexus is and how that uh, interacts with the kind of work that you're doing. Water Energy Food Nexus, um, you know, I thought the that nexus was sort of an official word that always went with water, energy, food. It turns out I've met many, many other colleagues from other fields of research that also claim the nexus word to be theirs. I think it's also a phone made by Google. So anyways, the nexus is a, is a piece of jargon that is used in many contexts. But in this case, it's referring specifically to water, energy, food, and actually we, we call it the WEFI nexus with an E at the end, uh, linking to environment. So water, energy, food, environment, what that's referring to is that there are these several systems in the world where those resources are deeply connected. And certainly river basins is, is probably one of the, the most clear examples. So in a river basin, you have obviously rivers, so the water is, of course, obvious. But then in many countries in the world, and often in Africa, the level of uh, national energy production from hydropower is very high. I mean, that's also true in Tanzania. So the river basin is is literally generating the power supply for the country. So there's the water energy elements. The food comes in, in that, you know, agriculture can be done with the natural rainfall, but it can often become more productive if supplemented with irrigation. So that's when a further water is applied, taken from rivers and put on fields. So there's the food part. And then finally, the environment, the fourth element of the nexus is, relates to the fact that the, the rivers are, you know, teeming with life and you know, they, they support all sorts of, of fish and, and uh, plants and, and biology. And when that river water goes out into the ocean, it sustains in the delta all sorts of ocean biological life. So there's a huge web of life. And it's not just sort of environment interest. I mean, there's thousands and thousands of people in the Refugee Basin whose entire livelihood and culture is intimately tied and dependent on 
that rich biological life and that ecosystem. So there is the problem right there of the nexus is that I just told you the four elements and I just told you how essential each one of them is. Um, and that's the problem is that, um, you know, if the four are essential, well, whenever you do something like, for example, invest in a new dam, like we are going to now in Tanzania, well, how does the contributions or how do the benefits assigned to each of those four elements of the nexus, how are they redistributed by this human intervention? So in summary, the nexus is about connections between four resource systems and that whenever you intervene to further the benefits of one of the nexus elements, the other three feel the the impacts of this. And those can be either benefits or cost. So Julian, can you tell us how should climate change information be included in the planning of infrastructures for water resources? Okay, thanks for that question, Cornelia. Well, you, you just asked the question, which was the... Um, well, I think it was, you know, this project was a few million pounds over four years. So you asked the four million pound question. That's not an easy question to answer. You know, how should climate change information and climate change science intervene and be used in decision making? It's an extremely difficult question. It's one that the whole world is grappling with from national governments to river basin agencies to funders of development projects and infrastructure for example, like the World Bank and and other lending uh, institutions and grant-giving institutions. You know, and it really, that question is, you know, and, and so just to, to remind you that, you know, so the complexity is not just the water, energy, food, environment nexus, the way that the river basin combines those four elements, but it's also that the future of those four systems is of course very much uncertain and it's driven by the conditions, the rainfall, the temperature of the future, which is unknown. And not only that, but also the social and political changes that might that might follow from future changes in conditions. So climate change adds a real another difficult dimension to this conundrum of how should we make investments and decisions today for infrastructure and for systems that are in place in the future when we don't know the future, right? So how do you intervene in the supply-demand system? You know, an economist or an engineer would ask the question, you know, how should I intervene in this supply-demand system when I don't know future supply and I don't know future demand? So in this case, supply would be, for example, the rainfall. How much rainfall is there going to be? And the demand is, well, where are people going to live? What are they going to, what, what mix of energy, water, and food services are they going to require? Are they going to want? You know, how wealthy is Tanzania going to be in 30 years and how what access to international water, energy and food markets, especially food markets, will it have and what will be its access to energy markets? So there are many different elements of uncertainty and perhaps one of the most troubling ones is climate change. And so should we, you know, should we even because climate change is uncertain? Should we be considering it today when we make when evaluating investments for the future? Because if it's uncertain, well, how can we do that? Thank you so much, Julian, for sharing the amazing work you're doing and explaining these complex issues for us. We really look forward to seeing how the tools you have designed have an impact in the future. Thank you very much. It's been a rich episode with so many insights. Cornelia, what were your key take home points? These are some of the things that stood out for me. 
Firstly, that there is a need for more resilient water infrastructure. This is one of the ways to build resilience for climate change risk. And secondly, a blend of different water resources, innovations and robust decision making would help in managing future climate risk. Lastly, the inclusion of decision makers and diverse stakeholders is essential to planning for water resource management. Absolutely. Mine are that you can still make plans to adapt even when there is uncertainty about what the future climate will be. Informal settlements are common in African cities and water supply issues are therefore a lot more complex, relying on both formal water sources and unregulated, possibly unsafe sources. And lastly, water supply issues are going to continue to be really important for most African cities, although some are planning for too little and others for too much. Cape Town's drought and day zero is a particularly good example of the kinds of challenges cities may be facing in the future. We've come to the end of this episode. Thank you for tuning in. We would love to hear from our listeners. If you have any burning questions or comments, please email info at futureclimateafrica.org. If you'd like to learn more about the work mentioned on this podcast, please visit futureclimateafrica.org. You can also follow us on Twitter on the handle at future underscore climate or on LinkedIn under Future Climate for Africa. Take a look at the podcast show notes for any of the links you may have missed. Join us again next time for more groundbreaking African climate research and stories.